When Manny Saxena boarded a plane to the U.S. from his native India to attend business school, he didn't imagine that street sweeping would be his fate. But boy, has that fate been sweet. Manny only owned his businesses, he acquired three, for 16 months, which meant his search was actually longer than his tenure as operator. But he used those 16 months well, making both tactical and big strategic decisions aggressively to become the largest municipal street sweeping company in Northern California. As you may have already guessed, one of the appealing aspects of the street sweeping business is contracted revenue with customers that aren't going anywhere, municipalities. Indeed, Manny says he could tell you today his revenue for, let's say, October 2025. His contracts were that sticky and predictable. But I hear you saying, yeah, but those big street sweeping machines, lots of CapEx. I don't like that. Well, listen for Manny's response. Spoiler, he thinks searchers are CapEx phobic. Lastly, we spend a lot of time on what it's like to buy a blue collar business. Manny was an MBA, parachuting into a completely different environment. I find this topic endlessly interesting because it seems to be so challenging for some while perfectly fine for others. I think it's important to tease out when and why it works. Okay, here is Manny Saxena, buyer of three street sweeping businesses. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. You already know that business owners are making amazing use of virtual assistants, often based in the Philippines. And while virtual assistants are helpful, virtual professionals are transformative. More Staffing is a boutique agency that hires A players in the Philippines, not for simple tasks, but for deep competency work. Think operators, supply chain managers, controllers. More Staffing de-risks your engagement with a 12-month guarantee to you, and they provide coaching for six months to their talent when an engagement begins. That means your hire is coached in the background, no additional cost to you, so that your working relationship flourishes and is as successful as it can be. Global staffing is increasingly the norm, and building the muscle within your business to take advantage of it will be crucial in the years ahead. Speak with more staffing about the pool of capable, affordable managers they can connect you with. Check out morenow.co. That's morenow.co. Manny Saxena, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thank you, Will. Uh, good to be here. Manny, we are going to hear about the wonderful world of street sweeping today. And I say that without sarcasm. Street sweeping business is the type that many in the Acquiring Minds audience uh, will love to learn about. It is a boring business, quote unquote. It's recurring. It's enduring. It's essential. And in your case, it was life-changing. So... Let's get into it, Manny. Can you start us off with some background on you, please? Sure. Uh, for those of you who uh, who can see me, it wouldn't come as a surprise that uh, I was born and brought up in India. Uh, and uh, my dad was an army officer back in the day, and uh, we, we traveled a lot. I changed schools 12 times growing up, um, which was really the building blocks of, uh, you know, my personality going forward. Um, 
But then uh, went and did engineering, like most Indians did back in the day, uh, without really thinking about what I wanted to do long term. And uh, uh, realized pretty early on that I was going to be an average engineer. Um, my mind worked more at the system level versus product level. I was more interested in business. Um, so really started to gravitate towards um, uh, just business topics and figured uh, I needed to learn more, like dig deep and where else to come but the mecca of business to for my business school education, uh, the US. Uh, came here in 2012, uh, went to Kellogg Northwestern and uh, really um, for the first time kind of felt um, uh, that I was, at least on a professional front, doing the right thing with and what I wanted to do with it. Um, and uh, really got lucky while I was at Kellogg. Uh, I wanted to escape the Chicago winters, so decided to do uh, <laughs> a study abroad session at, in IESC Barcelona, uh, where I got, uh, I, I didn't know, I got into this class uh, called Search Funds. And uh, this was probably the only class outside of HBS in Stanford in the back in the day uh, which taught about search funds, um, and it was taught by <clears throat> none other than uh, Peter Kelly from from Stanford, and uh, really fell in love with the concept there. And I just thought it was fascinating. I always want, knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I figured this was an, another way to go about entrepreneurship, which for me um, uh, catalyzed everything I loved about entrepreneurship. Right, and. Uh, but I also, also had a realization that I was not prepared to do it right after business school because I was an engineer before this. I had never lived in the U.S. period uh, to try and pitch it to uh, a, you know, a U.S. citizen to sell his business to me without the business background, without any background in the U.S. Uh, felt hard at that point. So I thought, thought I'd give it some time uh, and get some more. Um, I got the business education, but more kind of practical business education. Um, so ended up joining, uh, ended up looking for general management roles out of Kellogg. And uh, the one that seemed the best fit for me uh, to prepare myself for entrepreneurship or search fund in the future was the turnaround team at Sears, um, which was a fascinating place for somebody like me to go in because I was more of an internal consultant at Sears, jumping from one function to the other. Um, and I wanted business education. I got baptized by fire, really. And uh, <laughs> learned a ton there and, and, you know, really got my confidence there uh, in terms of uh, that, hey, I could contribute to this, um, this society and then I could be, I could stand on my own two legs and um, really be a, a force of change. Um, and I started to feel comfortable. And then, uh, you know, as I was thinking about search funds after spending about three years at Sears, I randomly got an offer from one of our vendors at Sears, the CDC heart startup, uh, AI startup. Uh, based out of New York, and they said, Manny, would you come do sales for us? And I was like, I'd never done sales, and I had a very different idea of who salespeople were in the U.S. Uh, and I was like, are you sure you, you didn't want me for another role? And he's like, no, you've, you've been a user of the product. <laughs> this is a really um, you know, consultative sales approach. Uh, you have to you know, uh, sit and talk with CMOs and CEOs of uh, you know, 14,000 companies, so we want somebody who can talk the language. Um, so ended up taking that as an, on as a challenge and I really felt like whatever I did in life, uh, I would be better off if I had a sales experience. I went in a little bit cocky, uh, you know, with, with all my successes at Sears and really got humbled really fast, uh, understood that how difficult sales could be. Um, and you know, how even getting one call was a game changer, uh, you know, somebody to answer your call, I guess. Uh, 
but again, a great experience. We started from, uh, you know, but started from zero salespeople, and then we, we grew up to about 15 salespeople. Um, and again, uh, gave me a great building block for what, what, what was to come in the future. Manny, why did they tap you to come do sales? I mean, you, you, you said yourself you were surprised that you were tapped. Um, you, you mentioned something about um, being able to converse you know, at the executive level. Was, was that it? What did they see in you that you didn't even necessarily see in yourself? Yeah, no, good question. So I think one was I was just a heavy user of that product uh, at Sears. So they were a vendor okay. of ours. And, uh, and, and, and there were a lot of, uh, through the partnership we had had with them, there were a lot of back and forth with them where I'd actually tried to improve their products <clears throat> based off of my experience using that product. So I developed a mm -hmm. close relationship with them. It was really, you know, it was really um, a, a product <clears throat> which was really hard to explain. So they basically did, uh, used AI to write marketing language for your brand, right? And what would resonate mm -hmm. with the customer. Mm -hmm. So it was a concept which was really difficult to explain in layman's language, right? It was not A plus B, you'll save C, right? Uh, it, it was more that, hey, if you did this, we, we, you know, uh, we would run 16 experiments to understand what worked best for your customer and then what emotions were triggered when what people read some, some statements and whatnot. Uh, so it was a very, um, I, I felt like it was much more consultative than uh, any other product where you could just say, hey, this is our product, this is what it does, and go. And then it was also a higher value, higher ticket size item. I remember it was at least between five hundred thousand to a million dollar product, right? So it was a lot yes. of a, a big ticket size item where you really the sales cycle were long, and you really had to understand the problems of the uh, uh, customer, and then really suggest what part of the product can help them. Uh, and so you you go there, you build the sales team up to I think you said fifteen people. Yeah, no, I was part of the sales team and we went up from, uh, you mm -hmm. know, I was an uh, individual contributor there, but we went up from zero salespeople to mm -hmm. 15 salespeople. Um, and mm -hmm. um, and then really felt like uh, I wanted to take the next step of either entrepreneurship or search funds uh, and really started to look deep into search funds because I knew uh, it had triggered something me, in me when, when, I was at, uh, when I was at Kellogg. And as I explored uh, different avenues of search, realized that there weren't an easy path for an immigrant. And I was, and I'm still am on an H1B visa uh, back in the day. And um, and to as part of the H1B visa, you gotta have employer-employee relationships. So you could not have your own search fund employ yourself. Um, so there were a lot of challenges like that. So I ended up uh, working with a, a search fund accelerator called Broadtree Partners. And they were, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if they were, uh, uh, if they if they underestimated the risk or they liked me uh, enough or, or more than other candidates, but they decided to give me a shot um, in 2018. Manny, what, tell tell us a little bit about what Broadtree Partners looks like. So is it's an accelerator? Is it cohort based, or do they just tap individuals and then they work with you as an individual? What what is? What, give us a picture. Yeah. So Broadtree Partners, uh, at least back in the day, they were a cohort model. So they hired four to six people every year from uh, mostly uh, you know, uh, one to five years out of business school. Um, and uh, they brought all of these uh, 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 searchers or operating partners um, together and they helped you train and be better at search. And they helped you with a lot of um, uh, relationships. They obviously they paid you a small salary. Uh, they sponsored your visa. Um, and, then, mm -hmm. uh, and then when it came time, they had LPs who we went back to 
on a deal by deal basis to go raise money for a deal. So that's how it worked. Mm -hmm. And the economic model is similar to a traditional search fund. I would say so. It's pretty close to a, a, a similar uh, a traditional search fund. And uh, we mm -hmm. also had small equity in everyone else's, like every other member of the cohort's uh, like deal so that it gave us mm -hmm. incentives. Not that we needed that. Uh, we already had a great personal relationship, but it gave us that financial incentive to root for the success of uh, our cohort mates as well. Oh, interesting. So each of you had a, a little bit of equity in, in the other's deal. Um, yes. Do you think that you would have done this model uh, if you hadn't had the visa hurdle? Or do you think you would have opted for self-funded or you never even got that far to consider it because you basically already knew that you were going to need somebody to sponsor your visa? I think it was, yeah, it was the latter. Um, I think it's really hard for me to go back and like and put myself in those shoes right now because I know a lot more about search and deals and whatnot. But I, you know, I would say this, I would prefer the, uh, the uh, search accelerator model over a traditional model. Because for a very few points that you give away, give away, you get a lot more, um, uh, you know, in the long term. And the way I kind of think about that is really, it's not just about the deal and what, how much equity you get at start, right? It's about, if you mm -hmm. think about mm -hmm. Manny as an asset, right? If you wanted to maximize the lifetime value of Manny, the most important thing is finding the deal, finding the deal fast, finding a good deal being able to run and grow that business, being able to exit from that business, and then the world is your oyster, right? And then you could basically, uh, you know, basically trajectory-wise could be very different if you had a great first deal versus like you end up buying a shitty business or average business, went on for seven, eight years, and then, you know, didn't get a great exit for you or your investors. You're kind of, you know, in the same place in my opinion, right? So I figured that every, each of those things that I said has a probability, right? And if there's, being with an accelerator increase that probability only fractionally, I would still take that bet, right? Because again, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's it's all about the lifetime value. And what do you think the value that was provided was specifically um, that enabled you to, that, that was worth, the, you know, an extra couple of points and that set you up to have, you know, a, just a much stronger first search experience? Yeah, uh, there there are a few. <clears throat> so one was you just get five people who are you have a different relationship with, right? It's a you know this and your audience knows this that search is a, can be a lonely journey and and it has its own ups and downs. You know, having five people go through the same experience exactly at the same start date as you, um, it, there's just some something magical in that, right? It's almost like you went to mm -hmm. the war zone together in the bond you have. Um, uh, uh, you know that 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 is really hard to replicate in like a loosely formed friendship, people like two friends who are doing search. I think, um, and then you have a relationship with these people for the rest of your life. I other CEOs, right? That's a good thing to have as well. <clears throat> Speaking of relationship, right? Like in my case, a lot of um, uh, we were raising money deal by deal, right? So I was speaking with a lot of LPs myself, going out pitching with with Broadry, uh, uh GPs. Uh, which made helped me form a bond with all these investors. In the future, when I needed more money, I was able to bank on those relationships to go back to them and pitch them because they knew me. Uh, the other thing mm -hmm. was just like basic, like, you know, I'd never done, done a deal before uh, for Broadway, right? So it just all, it gives you the confidence of working with somebody who has 
done that before, um, you know, being able like bring you or pull you away from pitfalls, you know, basic structuring things. Like there's a lot of things you can waste a lot of time on um, that they could help you uh, sway away from. Um, so there's a handful of things like that. And obviously you get a small salary that's, you know, uh, that's, you know, at least sustains you. Although I lived in San Francisco, so I would not call that sustaining, but um, besides <laughs> the point. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, and, and then obviously um, it's the uh, post-acquisition, you know, support system is already there. You have that relationship with that GP who's on, going to be on your board. So there's a friend in the board at all times, right? Which there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations that you don't want to have with the board, but there's always that GP. And there's just somebody, you know, interests are aligned for the most part. And um, and you're always, uh, you know, you can always confide in people uh, uh, who you've had this relationship with for the past two years. So I figured that was definitely worth the few points, you know, uh, that you would shave. Self-funded or not, I think is a different conversation. And, you know, you need to start with how much money you have in the first place. I did not have a ton. I had student debt back in the day. Um, so that was a little bit, you know, outside of the visa situation. It was a little bit of a hard thing to um, think about at that point. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, a lot of people do choose the the traditional search fund route, aside from all these pros and cons that people discuss, um, simply because they have to, um, they don't have the money to self-fund their search. So they they, they need the, the kind of stipend or salary that a traditional search fund provides. Uh, and Manny, just curious, so your, your cohort, your comrades, um, did they all go on to by businesses, what how, what did what did your cohort in the aggregate look like in terms of success? Yeah, out of the six people, five of us bought businesses, uh, so it was a good percentage there. The sixth person uh, mm -hmm. got really unlucky with one deal, uh, you know, which took a lot of lot of his time. But uh, he, like, after subsequent to leaving uh, Broadtree, he was able to find his own business as well, uh, you know. So huh. technically, all six. Six of us, you know, got businesses uh, and ran them. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com. Link in the show notes. And before we get into a little bit about your search and the business that you did find uh, and acquire, going back to the beginning, you mentioned how ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition, back in that business school class in, in Barcelona, just really resonated with you. Um, I, I can't remember how you put it, but it was uh, pretty strong. Like it just um, really lit you up. What Can you uh, elaborate on that? We, we, meaning me and the audience, could probably guess because since we're all similarly drawn to it, but articulate it for us. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, so I was always like, I need to do a startup because I love the accountability. I love the independence. I love the impact you could make. Uh, but when I was doing that class, what I realized was what I loved about entrepreneurship was really working with people, uh, getting a team, getting them excited about a vision, working with them on a day in and day out basis to work towards that vision more so than like, 
building a product or, you know, product market fit or raising money. Those were kind of like, for me, it was like, I'd have to do that. I'll do that if I have to do that, but I don't really love doing that, right? And this one basically mm-hmm. gave you a jump start, like Search Fund gave you a jump start to uh, really get to that stage directly and then grow on from there on out. So that was like a, for me, it was like, wait, you don't have to pay any money and you can be a CEO of a business you have ownership with and uh, and you can get to lead people and, you know, without that risk of ever needing to start a business or raise money and all that, how's that even possible? So for my mind was like, uh, like, what's the catch, right? And uh, and then as, as you learn more, <laughs> as I talk to more searchers, I was like, there was no catch except you just have to bust your ass to uh, to get through all those <laughs> stages, um, which I was totally fine with. Okay, Manny. So tell, take us to uh, take us to your search and anything you think is relevant to the, the search piece of your story before you find your street sweeping businesses. Yeah. So uh, I I uh, went in, um, you know, and uh, I had to kiss a lot of toads uh, to find my princess, uh, if I might say that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so I I got I got like six or seven LOIs uh, through my two, two year period, but every time something happened, right? And I was like, maybe I'm just cursed, you know? And, you know, one of these deals where, you know, you would go up, like I went to like two deals. I went after QOV legal, it started uh, and just fell apart at the altar. Uh, but then, you know, in the hindsight, 2020, and I've, I'm happy those deals failed because I ended up, uh, you know, I think buying uh, a really cool business, which you can get into in a minute. Uh, one advice I have always given searchers, which is, I also got that advice, but it's really hard to take. And you kind of, you know, just, you just, most searches slip uh, on that is once you get a deal, you kind of stop your pipeline, right? You start to like romanticize the idea of working in that company, being a CEO, you know, all that. And in the, and, and you kind of also get into the zone of like, hey, I don't want to do other deals because it feels like cheating or, you know, I, it doesn't feel right to be pitching to somebody else um, the, as you're like, talking to this one person. It's kind of like, you know, you kind of correlate that with like almost dating in some ways, right? But um yeah. I I thought I thought that was that's the that's a rookie mistake that people people make. And you know, um it's it, it's 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 about a process. It's about being committed to the process where you are going to be aggressive, you're going to be disciplined, you're going to be uh you know rinse rinse repeat um until you find a deal. Right, so you gotta you gotta go at it with from that mindset and look at your funnel every day. Right, even though you might have two LOIs, you still don't have the most important step, which is to buy that company, close that company. So until you have that, you have to keep the whole funnel uh, kind of going. Um, you know, for lack of a better word. Um, so that's a that's a rookie mistake, and I did it like multiple times because <laughs> I had multiple LOIs, uh, and I and I wish I wouldn't have done that. Um, but, um, and also like, I came from the sales world. So that was shame on me to do that because, you know, uh, I understood the process. Uh, so that's one advice I would give to give to searchers. It's really hard. And, you know, a lot of people listening to this would be like, yeah, I wouldn't do that when I search, but trust me, you'll be, if you don't do it, you'd be really compelled to do like at least think so. Uh, but that's one advice I would definitely give new searchers. So even though you you did six or seven LOIs, and once you got under LOI, you you weren't great at continuing to fill your pipeline. I'm surprised that you're you know you're doing things so sequentially. You're doing so many LOIs, and you still are able to 
complete your search in less than two years, the less than two years that Broadtree gives you because, you know, one deal under LOI can suck up months. Um, yeah. So did, did, were you toward kind of the end of your two year mark when you finally found the street sweeping businesses? I, I was. So uh, just to clarify on that. So the first three LOIs, I wasted about two, three months in each of those three, four months in each of those deals. And then I remember early part of 2020, I was I had a oh shit moment where I was like, oh shit, you know, I, all these LOIs have gone away. I have no pipeline and COVID is kind of coming, coming in. I, it's my, I've been yeah. with the company, with Broadtree for a year and a half. What am I going to do? And then I was just like, I, 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 I don't care about anything else. I'm just going to make the most of these six to eight months that they have and just go after it like there's no tomorrow, right? And I just, you know, I, I increased the volume, the number of calls I did. I did like, I remember five, six calls every day for the next four or five months, you know, pushed every deal that I thought had a chance of us closing. And within three months, and it was also like, I got lucky and it was also the COVID time. So people were kind of nervous about what was going to happen. I got three LOIs. Uh, so at, at, at in like June, May or June of like 2020, I had three LOIs. And I was just mm -hmm. like, with Broadtree, I was like, we got to do QV in all three because I'm not leaving here without without a deal. And they were like, we can't spend money on three QVs. Um, so, you know, it came to that point and uh, eventually it became really clear the business that I bought would be the most uh, sustainable business through COVID. And I had the biggest interest amongst, uh, you know, the preliminary conversations I had with the investors. So it was easy for me to shed that. But I, I remember until the close of the deal, I was still pushing um, for those two other two deals and my pipeline. And I was able to pass those two deals to, you know, uh, other searchers in my cohort, one to another ah. cohort in Broadtree. Uh, it didn't, those deals didn't close because of a variety of reasons, but I was able to do that, right? Um, so that's the mm -hmm. other thing, right? Like, um, you know, you don't have it until you have it and you can be complacent. complacent uh, and there's some luck involved, but there's a lot of process. There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of work, hard work uh, that goes into it as many people have gone through the process now. Well, I guess nothing like panic to to make you start <laughs> really motivated and, and start working harder, huh? Um, yeah. Okay. Hitting that, it's got, I mean, going back to sales, it's kind of like you, you, you weren't hitting your quota. You see it looming there in front of you, getting ever closer. And, uh, and then you get scared and you start doing everything you can to hit that quota. So, yeah, very cool. Okay, Manny. Well, then, so you're, you're doing, you've got these three businesses under LOI within two months or three months of COVID hitting. You must be the only person on the planet um, still trying to close a big deal uh, that soon in the wake of COVID um, because there was still so much uncertainty uh, that probably that probably helped you less competition, maybe, maybe got a stronger multiple. I don't know. Um, so tell us, tell us about the business that you, that you did close on. Yeah. So uh, I was clear that it was not going to be a normal quote unquote, normal fundraising uh, deal uh, environment, right? Uh, banks were kind of nervous. This was before the, I think this was around the time or before, I don't recall 100%, but uh, before the stimulus went in, um, mm -hmm. and people were nervous what the world would look like in a couple months, right? There was panic everywhere. Right. Uh, so uh, the the business that was best suited to kind of withstand all of that was the business that I bought, which was a street sweeping business. So um, 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 
you know, it was uh, an essential service. It didn't. The street sweeping is not only required for you to for you for you to for your city streets to look pretty. They literally have a, a health benefit. Like if you don't sweep your streets regularly, the stormwater runoffs can go into the, the drainage and can actually impact the water table. So cities had a, 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 a responsibility to sweep the streets on a regular basis. In fact. Uh, they had to, mandatorily, they had to sweep the streets to keep their NPDES permit, which is a permit they need to have to keep the uh, keep keep the city kind of uh, uh, disease-free. Uh, it was mm-hmm. the, the money that came for street sweeping also came from special funds within municipalities and cities. So it's like people are like, oh, what if like municipalities, cities start going bankrupt, right? But the money is actually the part of the enterprise fund or a special revenue fund. Which is not part of the general fund, wherein you know you, they always have money for that, right? It's like part of the in many cities, it's part of the um, you know the refuse fund, uh, where uh, you know where you pay money uh, for your garbage collection. It's part of that that goes into street sweeping. It's almost like a business center for the city and municipality. So they would never like they would never run. Uh, they would not. They, they would always have the money and they're mandated by law to spend it on these specific activities. And every municipality has has this, I'm sorry, what was it called? The restricted fund? They all have this? This is a typical structure you see across all municipalities? Yeah, there's like, they call it differently, but there are two, three types of funds, right? There's a general fund, which is like, you know, they invest in right. everything they want to invest in, the libraries, the parks or whatnot. There is, a, 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 there is an enterprise fund, which is basically almost like a business unit they make money from the residents on collection of garbage and and whatnot. They use that part of, and that money can be only used for like street sweeping, garbage, or like face collection, those kinds of efforts. So there's that's that's the business, you know, that they always have money for that because they're getting paid for the customers. And if they don't have the money, they'll just raise the rates for that, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then there's a special revenue fund wherein they're earmarked for special activities that you can only, it's called like a refuse fund. It's like a disposal fund. They call it differently in different cities. You can only use that for certain, uh, like if you wanted to build a new library, you could not use those funds, right? For example, right? So um, so that was really good to know. And like, in fact, we went back and saw that in 2012, city of Stockton went bankrupt and the city of Stockton was a customer of ours. Um, and, but the sweeping went on, went on regularly. Uh, it didn't miss beat because that was not part of uh, the fund that had gone bankrupt. Um, mm-hmm. so it was essential service. It was very, um, like from a funding source, it was stable funding source, right? As stable as it gets, uh, you know, in that, in those times, um, it was a uh, recurring revenue because you had these three, five, 10 year contracts with, with city, with, with cities. And it was literally running, uh, trucks on time was the only thing you had to do. Right. Um, you know, you, I could tell you what my revenue was going to be. Four years from today, or let's say you know two years from today, and on a random <laughs> October like today, because I knew I was charging them exactly the same thing. These were the three routes for this city. These were the two routes for that city. Um, <clears throat> so there was a lot of things to <clears throat> things to like in that business. Um, the owners were great, yeah. you know, and um, I had a good relationship with them. Uh, the industry in general was very fragmented, right? At least back in the day. Now, not so much, but back in the day. Uh, it was, um, you know, 80% of the industry was probably less than 10 pieces of equipment and we had hundred trucks, right? So we were one of the larger, uh, companies when we bought it, bought the company. Um, and, uh, and yeah. And, and I felt like, 
it was uh, it was kind of like a you know as you said earlier it's kind of like a boring industry where people are not you know gone in and uh, done done a lot of value add and improvements you know tech and whatnot and which I felt I could go in and do a lot of those things to uh, get meaningful uh, um, meaningful value add pretty quickly um, and then acquisition was always uh, always on the cards because um, you know you're buying contracts really when you're buying companies more than anything else. Uh, so that was, and that was one of the two companies we bought, by the way, we bought two companies right at the, right at the, right at the gate, both from the same owners. This was the municipality sweeping company. And then, and then there was a, uh, a construction street sweeping company, which had a little bit different dynamics. It was hourly to general contractors, but mostly to general contractors that build roads and highways. So again, federal funding coming in, uh, you know, and it was regulatorily mandated for you to have a sweeper on site while you did the road construction, because again, they didn't want the runoff to go into the uh, uh, gutter and drainage. Uh, so the entire production can, the entire road construction could shut down if you didn't have a sweeper on site, right? So, and then it was wow. a very small mm -hmm. share of wallet for the general contractor, mm -hmm. right? $250, $200 an hour versus tens of thousands of dollars they're paying for, you know, everything else, their crew and whatnot. Uh, they didn't care about, like, they just wanted good service. They didn't really care about, uh, price as much. They were less price conscious, like sensitive because again, they're spending tens of thousands of dollars an hour. Uh, so that was also a niche, very nice business, even though they were in the sweeping space. Um, uh, you know, uh, there were some similarities there with the essential nature of the service, but they were different in many regards because that was hourly. Somebody called you a week in advance, you booked the trucks. It's almost like a taxi calling service. Uh, whereas disparity yeah. sweeping was a lot more like steady Eddie, you know, you had these five, 10 year contracts. Yeah. Uh, another thing that was pretty interest might be interesting to your, uh, viewers could be, uh, this construction sweeping company was a union company. So we had two unions there, both teams as an operating engineers. I, Manny, let me pause you. Cause I, I do want to spend a little bit of time on the union. So we'll, we'll get there, but let me jump in with some questions. Um, yeah. so it's, it's interesting to, it's interesting that, I mean, we hear about this this dichotomy between construction revenue versus kind of maintenance revenue. You hear about that in landscaping among many other industries um, and, or project revenue versus contract recurring revenue. And so interesting that even in street sweeping, that, that turns out to be a thing. So that all sounds wonderful, like a very appealing business, particularly the the business, the, the municipal side of the business more than the construction since it's recurring revenue. Um, but let's talk about two of the quote weaknesses perhaps to this to this business. Let's let's nitpick a little bit. These machines, uh, the, the, the street, street sweepers I know from our pre-call cost half a million bucks. So heavy capex. Um, and that the answer may simply be, well, yeah, you, but you just factor you just factor that into the cost structure, and that's that. <laughs> uh, but but answer that for us. But then also customer concentration. So I imagine, I would imagine that you know one or two municipalities could represent a, a size. I mean, how many customers did you have? Is the question, and what was your largest customer as a percentage of revenue? So, so capex and customer concentration, please. Yeah, the second one I'll tackle first because it's a quick answer. So we did not have customer concentration. In fact, we were the largest player in the municipality player in um, sec second largest in California, largest in Northern California. So we had a really high concentration of customers. We had about 45 to 50 customers and none of the customers mm -hmm. were over 10% of our revenue. So there was very less customer oh, concentration, amazing. in fact, which is, which is really good. Um, 
on the yeah, first piece. So I, I, the CapEx piece, um, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say I have a bone to pick with people who say, you know, these are the parameters, these are the parameters you want to go after when you're doing search. Uh, I do want to say that uh, you should look everything with some context. Sure, it's a high mint, high capex business. Is does that mean I automatically reject that, or I dig a little bit deeper? So if you dig a little bit deeper, uh, what you find out is there is what they call a maintenance capex, right? Which is like you just need to buy the X number of machines to keep the same number of uh, trucks, right? Uh, which is a maintenance capex. So the way I looked at this was not on an EBITDA basis, which was, you know, depreciation is a real expense, uh, right, in these high CapEx business. So what I did was EBITDA minus maintenance CapEx as my free cash flow metric. And it still made mm -hmm. sense from a multiple standpoint in terms of what um, uh, what we were paying for that company. That's one. Second one mm -hmm. was uh, CapEx is a bad thing, but can also be a friend. Uh, the friend part is, like, not everyone in a really fragmented industry can afford Back in the day, the trucks were three hundred, three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Could afford that type, those type of trucks. And many cities, because of Calif California being California, mandated use of new new equipment. So there were very few people who were able to bid for those uh, for those municipalities. Hence, you could uh, there was less like competition because of that those those very equipment uh, that you had, right? There was also regulations coming in called CARB, a California Air Research Board, where you could not have trucks older than a certain period, which drove away a lot of people who didn't want to invest more in the business, right? So then you're again, you know, you're the only, I remember, uh, you know, we um, we were the dominant player uh, in Northern California. Like we always bid for cities and they were like two, two or three other comp competition, like local regional competition in Northern California. But uh, we were mm -hmm. able to use that to our um, to a quote unquote advantage because uh, not everyone had that. Uh, you know, not just not just from what I inherited from the business, but also I went in anticipating that capex. So I had an equipment line of credit. I was able to explain to the banks what I was looking for in the next six, twelve, eighteen months in terms of capex investment. Um, also, it was smart capex in that you didn't have to buy the trucks until you won the contract. In many ways. Right, so uh, you're able to, if you win a contract of five five hundred thousand uh, dollars for five years, you can invest in one truck. Right, you can take it to the bank, uh, mm -hmm. and then the other thing was the capex was very the, the truck market was very liquid. It's almost like you know, if you didn't want the truck, you bought a secondhand truck. Let's say you didn't want the truck, you sold it a week later, you'd probably get the same price. Right, so it's not like you're stuck mm. with this. Like mm. you know, there's cap. There are different types of capex. Right, if you buy a capex. If you put CapEx in a building a manufacturing plant, yeah, you're stuck because you build that manufacturing plant. You yeah. can't undo that. But if you bought a truck and you're like, oh, shit, I don't have ways to use this truck, you can hypothetically sell that truck the next day. So there's all kinds of like, yeah. so that's why I yeah. feel like when people have those guardrails around what they should buy and not buy, they kind of tend to forget. And a lot of times that's why it becomes like an opportunity for you because people like small private equity funds or, you know, the... Uh, uh, other investors who are just looking at it at a surface level tend to disregard some of those businesses, but sometimes it could be like a, a diamond in the rough, which is what I found street sweeping uh, capex to be in my mind. Yeah, well, that, that's a great point that it, it it probably makes it a less competitive business to acquire, but also a great point that you made that um, assuming you're not a tiny little guy, you're you're a, you're a business of some size. 
that capex can be a moat or a competitive advantage against uh, against other your competitors once you're in the business. So very right. very interesting. Okay. So all right. So here we are, and you're doing all this out of the Bay Area. You're living in the Bay Area at this point. Yep. Yep. I lived in Fremont, right. and uh, our offices had were in uh, Milpitas, Fremont, and Stockton. Uh, three offices in a couple of satellite yards. And they, so you bought two businesses from the same owners and the one business was municipal revenue. The other business was construction. Um, Pick us up from there. Yeah. So uh, bought that business, obviously, uh, you know, it was a, it was not your uh, typical business uh, that you would expect as you kind of glorify being a CEO, like before you start search, street sweeping is not the, like, I didn't board that flight uh, from India, thinking one day I'll be a street sweeping company owner or or, 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 or whatnot, or even <laughs> no? similar, remotely similar. No, um, but uh, but uh, you find yourself in a blue collared environment, right? Where which is very different yeah. from what you've done, and uh, especially in the U.S. Because you know I'd only worked at like professional services, you know, big large companies, business school before that, so I had a very different like exposure to a very different type of. Uh, um, you know, persona or people. And uh, so I was yep. a little bit nervous going in. Uh, but I, actually, when I went in, I just, I felt, I felt like, uh, uh, you know, uh, I had a breath of uh, fresh air uh, for whatever reason. One, I felt like the role that I had, uh, like I, I could sense from day one that I was doing the right thing with my life. And I don't know how else to describe that. 80% of my time was spent on doing things that I love to do, which was to work with people, get them excited about a vision, you know, work towards uh, analytically solving for, for, for issues that uh, people typically don't spend a lot of time on, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I obviously had a credibility. Uh, you know, I had to establish credibility really soon uh, because, again, people like me don't run street sweeping businesses in the Bay Area, especially. Uh, and, um, so, uh, so I, we, I had to establish that really, really quickly. And, and I did find that, um, it was hard in the beginning, but I felt like people, uh, you know, gave me, uh, space, uh, and then I was able to learn and develop a personal relationship with each of the people that I met. Um, and, uh, you know, just by virtue of me being side by side with them in the trenches, I, I, I over time, I, I, I sensed that I could gain their respect as well. Uh, but there was a lot of, lot of like lower hanging fruits that I could attack right day one, right? Well, they're not day one, but many, you, you know, the many, quarter let, one. Let, let, let me, let me stop you. I want to get to the low hanging fruit, but I have a bunch of questions about this transition period. You said a number yeah. of fascinating things there. Uh, so a lot of, um, the, a lot of the caution that, uh, we hear about in our space is going, buying a blue collar business. Because, first of all, there can be a culture gap like you experienced where you're, you know, people who buy businesses often come from white collar backgrounds, sometimes very great, some of the world's best business schools. So very high, kind of highfalutin, uh, highfalutin environments to blue collar environments. So there's a culture gap there. Um, also, just the nature of the work uh, is something that I hear repeatedly like the, you know, the MBAs underestimate or don't fully understand what it means to to parachute into a blue collar business and what your day to day looks like and how you can get in there on day 1 or day 8 and be like oh dear <laughs> this is actually 
not for me. And then, and then you're stuck. So, um, you, for, I think you just said from day one, you felt like it was just right. So contrast your feeling of rightness to some of the people who will be listening to this and wondering if they should buy a blue collar business and, 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 and those who already have and think that they've made a mistake. What's different about Manny, Manny's experience and those experiences? Yeah, part of it is my background also, right? So I grew up in India, you know, and uh, uh, my dad was in the army, so we've kept moving around a lot. So I was, I was like really comfortable with change and like, like I was pretty flexible with like what I needed to sustain myself, um, you know, and uh, I was able to quickly make friends because I changed every year, like school every year. So I kind of had a lot of practice around that. But also like when I was an engineer, I actually worked uh, in India at a power equipment manufacturing company. Uh, where I was on the shop floor of manufacturing, uh, like uh, day one, right out of undergrad for for a couple of years, right, and I didn't know then, but it definitely set uh, it, it it set the stage for uh, honing in on my uh, interpersonal skills, right, with people, mm-hmm. especially blue collar people. That was also union labor, by the way, uh, and I just I just you know I just you know I I don't you know I don't know how to say this, but I'll I'll say it the way it's kind of coming in my head is uh, I just felt like those were real people uh, when you talk to them, mm. you know, and uh, it's, you know, I feel like as MBA folks, you tend to st- start to get entitled a little bit, you know, Oh, I only, you know, doing this much or my salary should be that much. Uh, just having that real mm-hmm. nature, somebody who can, you know, for a 80 grand salary can work their heart out and uh, still want to, still love their job and love the company as if it's their own, uh, going above and beyond, mm-hmm. not, uh, you know, not really asking, like having the service attitude of giving versus trying to take was just a breath of fresh air to me. I just felt like that's, you know, mm-hmm. I felt independent. I just felt like this is, this is like the real America. This is the, uh, you know, these are the people that not saying that anything specific, specifically wrong with what, uh, highly motivated, ambitious people uh, think through, mm-hmm. but it was just great to just be with like um, uh, folks who were just like love their job and you know love coming in every day and saving money for the company. And so I just felt I just have had a personal connection with them that you know that I that I loved uh, mm-hmm. from 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 day one. Uh, I also feel like uh, the. The good thing about, and again, this is a learning uh, for anyone who's uh, who's hearing this. A lot of times you're focused on EBITDA of the business, right? Hey, three, X million dollar EBITDA, I'm going to go buy that business. But they're not focused as heavily on the team, right? And what kind of like middle uh, management you have as a team. And this business, and I didn't really appreciate it when I bought the business because, again, I was also looking at EBITDA. But they had general managers, they had supervisors, they had... Um, they had, uh, you know, uh, foremen, they had all those middle management layer that didn't make me feel like I needed to like get a hold of everything right at day one. Uh, and I had the flexibility or timing to take it at my own pace. That helped me a lot because I knew the business was getting taken care of on a day in day out basis. I literally just met and met, uh, you know, personally, uh, with every employee of the company, um, you know, from right from the driver to, you know, general managers um, and really uh, was able to strike a, a personal relationship, at least to some extent, uh, with all of them, uh, which helped me tremendously, uh, you know, as I 
understood their business, understood their lives, understood what their ambitions are, understood what their incentives could be, uh, understood what their challenges were, um, all that, uh, you know, upfront time that was spent with them was, I think, well spent and uh, helped me a lot throughout the, uh, the time we held the business. And how many people were at the business? How many employees were there? So across both businesses, there were over 100 people, about 100, 125 people. Um, and again, as I said, there were two unions in part of the business, and there was a whole non-union arm as well. So two different companies completely separate from each other. I want to ask two more questions on buying a, a blue-collar business. I, I, I don't want to beat this to death, but uh, I know people wonder about it. First, being an immigrant yourself, you've already touched on a little bit about how that, how that informed your experience. But I, I know because I, I've gotten emails to this effect that um, people uh, who are not from the real America, maybe they're people of color, maybe they're immigrants, maybe they're sons and daughters of immigrants, wonder if there could if it could be difficult for them to buy a business from maybe a retiring blue collar owner and then to preside over a blue collar business. It's just something that enters their mind naturally. Uh, what would you say to them? I would say there's some truth to that, right? Like it's, it's, and it's not, I'm, I'm not going to jump to the R word uh, directly, but it's just about yeah. exploring yeah. commonalities between, you know, whoever you're talking to and being able to establish a relationship, right? You're better, you're more likely to establish a relationship with someone who you have some common grounds with, right? Yeah. More, especially when, when it's the question of selling, you know, or selling your company, which is, you know, your proverbial baby and give it away to somebody who you can trust, you know, with the employees you've, you know, had a relationship for the, for all your life. Um, so I, there is some of that, but I, I, I and I, I sensed in many, and there were some owners who I could just sense that right away when I was talking to them through my search process, there were other owners who were skeptical as they got into it um, and the conversation. But for the most part, I felt like these people were street smart people, right? These people not, stupid people. They've built businesses from ground up by hustle, brute force, and um and they uh and and they they know uh what to look for look for in people. They've interviewed people, they've had teams before, right? So these are like intelligent folks in my in my opinion. So it it didn't take them long to understand that you were also a person like you were a smart person, you had done your research you know, you were asking good questions, you were giving them suggestions, uh, you know, in the, early on in the process, free of cost, as you, you know, discussed more about the business. Sometimes you were sending them, like, I remember through COVID, I sent them every good, like, legal article that I got to to owners of the business uh, in terms of what they should do and what policies they could have. So you're just adding them, adding value to what they were doing. You were taking that extra, you're doing the, putting, the, putting that extra effort to go and see them. A lot of times people like, okay, I can just call somebody or get on a Zoom call more so now than then. then. But I just felt like uh, for both you and them, it's a, a thousand times better to be in front of those people and talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, both from a standpoint of for you to learn the business and love the business, but also find ways where, find reasons where you're like, ah, this is not a good fit for me, right? So again, there's a mm -hmm. whole like balance between, you know, how much time you got to spend, you know, driving out there, flying out there. But I've been a big proponent of doing that, uh, like just going out there physically. And that helped me a lot as well. So I think, you know, the short answer to your question is, yes, initially it is tough and hard and, you know, 
you have an accent and people like, what are you doing? And in the Bay Area, especially you have people have a different connotation of who, like what brown people do uh, in the Bay Area. Mm. But I think it mm-hmm. takes them, takes takes an hour or two of like good research, you know, questions and, you know, relationship building that you could do with them. And there's all these common grounds uh, with regards to what you want to do in life. A lot of times it's might not, might not be about the past, but it could be about the future, what you could do with their company to grow their company, how you can make them more money, right, through like cash close or old equity or whatnot. So there's always those kinds of discussions that you can have with people and those things fall away. And to be honest, that was a lot of that I attribute to going to Kellogg, which is the business school I went to, where I was able to f- practice those skills, right? Like in the first year, I, it was pretty hard for me to come in. A lot of times I didn't even remember, I didn't even understand uh, if people were talking about music, sports, or, you know, something else. Like it was, I literally <laughs> was, would be sitting and standing in those circles and I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. Like even the topic, I don't understand. Um, and then like spending enough time with people, you know, forced Kellogg as a school forces you to uh, be in teams a lot more. Uh, so you are just developing those deep relationships or the skill sets to develop those deep relationships was, was again, I had the training ground at, at, at Kellogg, which was, which was super helpful. Um, and then just the, yeah, I think one of the things that a lot of, um, immigrants unfortunately have is inhibitions or lack of confidence, Right. I did too, and I, I still do to some extent, right? Uh, but it's it's about like you know jumping with both feet in, um, and 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 uh, you know uh, and 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 realizing that what's like what's the worst that can happen? You could look stupid, you know, and and a lot of times you do look stupid when you're stammering or you know you're uh, you want to say something you can't think of a word because you're still thinking in a different language, you know. Uh, and a lot of times I did look stupid, but the frequency of me looking stupid, I think went down over the years. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's been super helpful, right? Because a lot of times it's easier for immigrants to be like, okay, I'm going to stick with the Indian population. Or if I'm a, you know, Asian, I'm going to stick with the Asian population. Right. And it just robs you of the chance to, uh, to, you know, have a global mindset or, uh, have like a, you know, learning opportunity, which all the, the biggest, in my opinion, is the biggest thing why you pay $200,000 to go to a business school is to be able to do that. Um, so I think, you know, I've said a lot of disparate points, but hopefully, hopefully that, you know, uh, it answers your question, but that's, that was my experience. Yeah, that, that was awesome, Manny. Thank you for that. Um, and my last question on the on the blue collar businesses. One thing I've heard you say now a couple of times is that you really um, really get charged up by motivating a team and getting them uh, signed on to your your vision and and marching forward to a glorious future. Now, um, I, I I this is delicate because I don't. So I'll just say it. Um, I have heard from a number of people who buy blue collar businesses that that folks in blue collar businesses don't have the same kind of motivations. They're differently motivated. It's not that they're unmotivated, but they're differently motivated than your average Kellogg grad, you know, who, who's, who's kind of frankly often defined by their per- personal ambitions. Um, and, and blue collar people just are, are often just oriented a, a little, a little bit differently. Um, not necessarily better or worse, but different. And, and, 
So, so they'll get into a blue collar business, this, you know, this enterprising MBA or, or somebody coming out of corporate who wants to now own their own business with all these ideas and all these plans and all this energy and find that it just goes over like a lead balloon to the, to the staff that they've inherited, um, who doesn't necessarily want a lot of disruption or racing or energy in their existing lives. They just, yeah, they just find it kind of disruptive. Um, and they're not similarly motivated because they didn't buy the business. <laughs> you know, they're still, maybe they get a little raise from you, but it's not like they, there's some gold at the end of the, the rainbow for them. So all of that said, how do you respond to all of that? It sounds like you were able to, to motivate folks in an environment like that. How, how, so how do you respond to all that? Yeah, no, I think there's definite truth in that. Uh, first of all, you know, when you buy a business, you rarely have a team that you would otherwise have put together yourself if you had started that business. You rarely have that. And, I, you know, I'd be, if 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 that they had that team, they probably wouldn't sell it to you and they definitely wouldn't sell it to you at a multiple you want to buy the business in, in the source fund world, right? So <laughs> there's those challenges for sure, right? Uh, but I think what I've realized over the years of, running multiple companies, teams, and whatnot. Uh, two things. One is, uh, it's all about the attitude, I think, right? It's it's less about the potential, uh, not, it's less about the um, caliber of that person at, at day one. It's all about the attitude. And I'll give you an example, like a lot of times we would uh, ha have some issues street sweeping on a street, in a street. And then when you found the, you could have somebody out there for years and the, you would have complaints. And then you would send somebody in who is less experienced than that person and zip, no complaints. It's all about, I figured at least in that job and many other jobs, it's about how do you, how do you, even if, even if you, you know, you're doing an hourly job and, you know, supposedly you're doing a street sweeping job, uh, which might not be looked on like, uh, from the society a certain way, you take pride in your work, right? And those are skill sets, mm -hmm. soft skill sets that I felt like I, I was always looking out for. Who, somebody who went above and beyond, right? Somebody who uh, didn't just do like my nine to five, get my OT and out, right? So we heavily rewarded people who were just like, we got, uh, you know, one example was uh, somebody, uh, you know, had dropped their wallet and the sweeper had sucked the wallet up and, you know, gone away, drove away and they had called that driver through the city and the driver went with that resident to the place that dumped the debris and looked for it for the wallet and found it, right? And that's just like blowed me away. Wow. Right? You know? Wow. Yeah, uh, it's and amazing. It just, it, it just, you know, it's just hard to find. And, I've, and and the other thing that I said, two things in the beginning. So the, the other thing I found was, even though they might not be incentivized by the same thing as you, which could be like, oh, I want to build this empire as a Kellogg grad or, you know, revenue EBITDA, but there's, they always have, they have a lot of, um, you know, um, aspirations for, like let's say their families, right? Or what their business work like should look like. And, you know, so uh, if you put the right people in the right place, you know, you were able to draw out, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, performance from people who were, you know, uh, who were able to not give their best in their roles they were assigned to. Uh, and the third time was like, yeah, of course there were people who were like, these people, this is, this is a destroying my culture and this is not the right fit. And you've got to, move on those people fast because, you know, it's, the, you know, uh, it's, it's, they do more harm than good uh, in the culture form, form and they, they bring more people down. It's just a dark cloud hanging over. You could sense that a lot of times that's our first in instinct uh, you, is, is, is right. 
And then you test that, you ask people around and you know that that's the right thing to do. And you just got to act on that fast. Um, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and then you got to look for structural things too, right? And in our case, we looked at people who had two jobs, weren't doing a, as good a job with street sweeping as people who just use this as 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 their sole job. And and it's, you know, it's barrier, it's expensive. So people sometimes needed two jobs to sustain their uh sustain their families, which is, you know, which is, uh, which was obviously sad to hear, uh, even though we were paying really well. But then what I said was like, let's just give, let's just reduce the workforce, give people full eight hours and give them overtime if need be, instead of hiring that one person for four hours, you know, every, every other day. Right. So then they know that all that money, like they're getting a good salary from the company you know, they're getting good OT. They don't have to look outside. They're getting a fixed schedule of work. They know the same day, every day they sweep the same city, you know, that improved their work-life balance or quality of life significantly because they knew their schedule for the entire year. I could give them their schedule today for the entire year and they just had to do a good job. That was their sole purpose. They had the same truck. Uh, they had they didn't, uh, you know, two people didn't use that same truck. They were responsible for that truck. Those kinds of small adjustments that you do on operational front um, resulted in huge uh, increases in, in my opinion, the morale and motivation to do well. And uh, you know, and that was the reason why we were able to sustain a ninety percent plus, like um, uh, you know, resign or rebid rate. Uh, even sometimes when we were not the lowest bid, we were able to win because of our quality of service. Um, you know, and uh, so yeah, so that. That those were kind of you know my again my disparate thoughts on your question. Hopefully that answers that. It does. Thank you. Let's now turn to since we're talking about the people so much. Let's turn to the fact that the the, the union, which you've touched on already. So uh, assume uh, a low level of knowledge about unions here, because I have a low level of knowledge about unions. Maybe other I'm sure a lot of listeners will know more than I. Um, and just kind of. Tell us what we should know and understand about buying a business that has a big union presence. Yeah, I mean, unions, uh, and it's a very uh, polarizing topic, right, as, as I'm sure uh, you know. Um, I think it's, it has its pluses and minuses. You know, it's it, like anything, if it works well, it works really well. If it doesn't, it can get really ugly, like those kinds of uh, scenarios. Um, in our case, it worked pretty well in that... Uh, for a lot of our customers who were general contractors, they were all union too. So they had to um, they had to go out to the market looking for union companies only. So there was already, at least in the uh, construction street sweeping world, right? So there was a lot of uh, uh, competition that went away because they were not union, right? Um, the other thing that was really great was... Uh, it was it was level playing field for every competition. So all the competition they were paying exactly a collective bargaining agreement defined union wages. So it was to the penny. You're paying the drivers the same as your competition. So then at that point it was it all boiled down to how efficient you were, how tech savvy you were, how customer service oriented you were, uh, and you can win on those things versus like just hey I'll just father and a son duo. You know I'll just pay whatever to myself or my son and then start competing with you. That was not the case, right? You had to be paying ah. the workers the same as the rest of the competition. The other thing was they were pretty well compensated, hmm. right? So sometimes drivers would make like, you know, 70, 80 bucks an hour, right? 
uh, which was a good compensation. Uh, you know, a uh, couple drivers made like 80, 100 grand as well in, in you know, driving trucks, which is, um, which is yeah. kind of good money. So there was less uh, retention issues. So everyone wanted the, that job that paid you so well, right? Uh, so we didn't have like that much, that much churn in our labor, which saved on like various hassles of training people and less liability, more dependability, more customer service uh, orientation. Um, so that was again a win for me because that that's a huge problem in the blue collared world is to attract the right kind of talent, right? Um, uh, the negative the downsides are obviously like you know the you know, kind of obvious. It's pretty expensive to run the business. Um, you know, there's all these fringe benefits that you gotta you gotta you gotta spend on, um, which is you know makes your uh, uh, you know labor costs high. If you don't have a good relationship with the unions, that can get pretty ugly. I heard horror stories. You know, we thankfully had good relationship with the union. We did everything by the book. Um, you know, made sure that uh, the unions got their uh, check on time. We had a good relationship with the union rep. You know, got if if we had some personal issues, we were able to collaboratively solve solve for those. Um, and you know, to be honest, we were small. Like we were part of the two unions, which are massive unions. So we were like small. Uh, like we were not the we were not the uh, Tesla plant in Fremont that they were like like you know trying to whatever unionize and you know, fight for, we were like, you know, 40, 50 drivers. That was in the grander scheme of things. As long as we kept um, our head down and did the right thing, uh, we were, you know, we were kind of left alone, uh, so to say. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think for mm -hmm. us, it was a net positive. Um, um, and, you know, that's why I think the owners in the previous, like previous owners had, had actually created this union company to go after that market. Um, and mm -hmm. I think it was, a yeah. I, I would say though, from about, Selling point, when you sell your business, uh, like when you buy the business, there's a lot more questions in the union than uh, than a regular company. So it, it does become a little bit harder to convince a buyer to buy a company which is union. Uh, so that's, there's some, you know, well, there's some downside to that uh, because there's a lot of like pension liability, how are the unions doing? Can you withdraw away from withdrawal liability? There's all kinds of liabilities that uh, unions come with um but you know it's all about communication if you explain it properly and if you've been on the right side of the books um you can do it the a recent guest james bloom uh, mechanical hvac uh worked uh with his local union here in the dc area or baltimore area and had a and it was great for his business and he had a great relationship with the union and one of the benefits he said was that it was a great source of of labor, so so in a world where hiring plumbers is is really difficult, he could, you know, more or less pick up the phone and and be, kind of have a great plumber recommended to him and um, and come work for him, thanks to his union contacts. Is that did that play the same way for you? Yeah, it did. I mean, it kind of boils down to if you're getting paid significantly more than the non-union shop somewhere else, you attract more people and you attract better people, right? So it's just, a, I think it's a function of that. Uh, and uh, having a, somebody like an infrastructure of the union that has a scalable way to bring those pool of labor in and then send it to you, that is obviously a benefit. But we are, are in our case, we had very little churn because I think we were, 
we were just good with um, our employees and the retention was high. Uh, so we had very little churn. So we didn't have that problem too much. Uh, and every time we did, we always were able to find somebody on our own accord without even going to the union. Um, so so yes, but we didn't have that uh, issue or we didn't have that, uh, uh, you know, uh, even that positive impact directly from the unions. We just had it because we were paying a lot more. Okay, good um, distinction. Manny, we're, we're bumping up on time, but we still got a few topics to hit here. Um, so let, let's keep going and go quickly. The the uh, we talked about long term contracts, you know, that you could you know, you could see into your revenue years ahead. So you could tell me what your revenue will be in June 2025 sort of thing, 2026. From our pre-call, you, you did also acknowledge, though, that one of the bad things about recurring contracts in an inflationary environment is that you know now now what you're getting paid every month is is anchored to what you agreed to when things were a lot cheaper and now prices are, are going up on you and you have to do what how do you manage um, in an inflationary environment how do you manage these long-term contracts yeah first you panic and you have a oh shit moment and you start looking at a pnl and your fuel, <laughs> Another <one>. fuel's got <laughs> yeah fuel is uh, almost double of what you paid you know fuel was a big uh, chunk of our expenses and you know, parts were 150% more, you know, trucks were harder to get by, labor wanted more, otherwise they were moving away from California. And this is like the peak of, if, if, if it's been talking about inflation, the period of like 2021, 22 is probably the worst uh, time to, you know, have a fixed price contract with the municipalities. So we had that moment and you were just like, oh, what, what do we do? On the union side, it was good because we were able to raise prices every year, right? So it, it didn't matter, or I guess it mattered less in the, on yeah. the union sides, which is good because that was half our business. So half of our business didn't get impacted too much. On the on the municipality side, we were like, oh shit, like what do we do? And I was like, we should just go back to the municipalities and see if they would do an amendment, an ad hoc amendment, because guess what? They lived in the same world as we did. And uh, they also had employees. They were facing the same issues like we did. And I, when I went in, I thought between the 50 contracts, uh, let's say if I went to uh, 50 of them, I would get like five people or 10 people to give me something. I was actually surprised we were able to get like an increase, some sort of increase, out of turn increase from like 25, 30 contracts out of the 50 which was, yeah. you know, one, we were diligent about it. We went to the list. We told, we wrote a big letter about what's going on, gave them like actual price specs of different parts in 2020, 2022, or 2021. Um, and then fuel prices, everyone knew about the full fuel prices. It was like seven, six and a half dollars a gallon from like a year before it was $3 a gallon. Uh, so yeah. a lo- most, most municipalities, because they looked at us as partners. Again, they didn't have a street sweeping most part, they were outsourced street sweeping service, right? So they didn't have a street sweeper. So if we went out of business, then they would be stranded too, and they would have to like magically get a four hundred thousand dollars street sweeper, uh, and then train somebody and a mechanic to work uh, the streets. And street sweeping is one of those things which um, is uh, you know is nobody notices until everyone notices, right? So uh, so you get calls to the mayor, calls to the council. You know, there's all kinds of like political, like city, county relationships that get entangled in the street sweeping world if it's not happening well. So I, fi- I so we banked on that a little bit, and you know, a lot of it took a lot of like going to the cities, explaining to them, pitching to them, and uh, for the most part, they were like appreciative of the things we were going through, and they 
they you know we were not asking for the world we were not you know trying to take advantage of the situation we just wanted to get back to our quote unquote normal margin dollars that we were making and showing them that excel calculation being transparent being upfront uh with them helped and we were able to keep by and large uh you know there was a dip in margin but then we were able to uh get back to our usual margin within like 6 months or so um so that was but you know it's just one of those things which is like you know you you wouldn't know until you try and you know there's you would you would miss you know what was the michael jordan saying you miss 100% of the shots you don't take and that was my mm-hmm. philosophy mm-hmm. kind of going in and uh it worked out in so doing you uncovered another kind of strength of your business which yeah yes you you realized going into street sweeping that it was a quote essential service but like i think you uncovered just how essential it was or or just how badly your your customers want to see you survive and prosper reminds me of uh, my interview with caroline chaptelain a uh, very different business manufacturing a widget for for in the defense industry but this was a very strategic important widget and and her customers were desperate for that widget to keep coming off the production line and so if her business hit hard times it was almost like her customers were going to help her survive so if you can um perceive that when you're when you're evaluating businesses that you are just like that your customers are desperate for you to continue to survive that's a um that's just a a a mark of real strategic value in in the business so um many let's now we've kind of gotten into the weeds of the business uh, you as operator let's step back out um now to you as deal guy um you were you looked at the landscape the landscape the, the landscape of street sweeping across the country saw a very fragmented industry which uh we all know what that means what the opportunity there is but you also saw that there was starting to be some pe activity as i recall and take it from there i would start with walking you walking you through another oh shit moment uh so we bought this business in october of 2020 <laughs> and uh and we had modeled this business called sweeping corporation of america out on the east coast that had done a mini roll up and my goal if you went back to my sim i had two pages of why one day s sweeping corporation of america would acquire us when they started looking out on the west coast and I, and until then i would be ever so efficient and pick up a bunch of companies and then put a pretty bow on them and give it to them uh, at a at a pretty uh, significant value appreciation so that was the whole strategy right uh the, the you know it's what, what what's the mike tyson saying is like everyone has a plan until you get hit in hit in the, or punched in the face uh, that's what yeah. kind of happened uh with me uh so we bought the business in october 2020 warbuck pinkus the small dingy 90 billion dollar private equity fund bought sca <laughs> in december so 2 months after we bought our business and then in january or like early part of the year i don't recall the exact month but they announced buying our biggest competitor in california so they uh. like we were suddenly in 3 months we were competing with a warbuck pinkus back national company and and then we i also had that oh shit moment then they came to us to sell our business also and we could have sold at that point also pretty early in the process but i felt like we 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 had a lot of strengths that uh was hard not from a, a financial scale perspective but we had such high concentration of business in northern california it was hard even for a bigger comp- competition 
bigger competitor to come in and break that, right? Because one, you have contracts, so you have contracts. Second is it's such high concentration that the efficiency you derive from one truck was much higher than any competition would. So there were some inherent reasons mm-hmm. why I felt like we could compete with them. So we started, mm-hmm. we kind of went on the offensive and actually went down, opened up an office in their area, but they were big in SoCal. So we opened up an office in SoCal. We actually won a few contracts from them and, uh, you know, not their, I presume not their favorite, like discussion. I was, wasn't a favorite person in, 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 you know, in the board meetings or, you know, in their uh, leadership meetings, uh, during those days. Um, and then they wanted to buy a business in NorCal to start competing with us. Uh, but, uh, we were able to convince that person, that company to sell to us. And this was another, you know, <laughs> a big player in Sacramento, so they, we were going head to head and then we were able to convince them to come with us. Uh, so then we further strengthened our Northern California presence. We literally have the three largest companies in Northern California and it would take them like 10 years to, you know, organically like etch away at that business um, without spending a ton of money, right? Uh, so we bought that business and that's when like I got a call, you know, from, you know, Warburg Pincus and then we kind of discussed something and then they kept coming back with a better uh, price and it just came to a point where I went back to the board. I was like, look, this is literally a 90% or close to 90% of what our upside case in five years was. And we were like year one into the business, right? Year one, wow. 13 months into the business. So I was like, we can be stubborn and keep competing with them. I think, you know, we'll survive. But I think just mathematically speaking, this, I did the whole math it'd be better to sell this company at this crazy multiple because no one else would give you that multiple uh, and then give that money back to investors and you would be better off as an investor to put in an S&P 500 and still make the same money, you know, versus us holding for five years. Um, so it was, it was, you know, we sat at that board meeting and even though I, it was never my plan to sell this business, these businesses so fast, um, we, we sold that business, you know, in February of 2022 to Warburg backed. SCS, Sweeping Corporation of America. So that's an 18 month run, or actually less. 16 months. It's October 2020. 16 months. Yeah, 16 months. Yeah. Yeah. 16 months. And just, just to recap, you acquired two businesses at once, but from the same owners. So two different businesses, but kind of a single business, really, sort of. And then you bought another large player in Sacramento during this arms race with the Warburg Pincus acquired business. Um, and so then you have three businesses and then they, then, then, then they came to you and made an offer and you negotiated back and forth, got that offer up and sold. Amazing. And just uh, one detail. So did I hear you correctly, Manny, that, that they had come to you earlier? They'd come to you earlier, interested in buying you when when they bought one of your competitors, and you didn't want to sell then, so because you would have been what five five seven months in the business at that point. <laughs> well, well, actually, four months into the business, yeah, uh, four months, and you, yeah, I mean, and it was one we were going to pay uh, short term gain taxes, so I was like, you should at least run the business for a year, but more importantly, I just you know I just felt like I just felt like we were, you know one I, you know that. Like we had it in us to compete with them at least for the short term, yeah. and there were some yeah. things we were doing. Yeah, like you know, outside of the inorganic play, right? We were bidding at a lot of stuff outside of geography. We were talking to a couple of competitors. We used, we brought on. We didn't talk about much today, but we brought on a lot of tech, 
to the company, which was improving our margins significantly. We bought a fleet management system. We bought an AR collect software where, where uh, you know, AR went from like, I don't know, like three, four million to like one million, you know. So there was a lot of value being added like pretty early on uh, in the process. I was like, you know, I, got, I, I owe it to the company, to myself to like see some of these initiatives through. Um, which is yeah. going to greatly improve the value. If nothing, it's going to like, even if I stick on for a year, it's going to greatly improve the value of the business because margins would be much better and we were, we'd be much more kind of integratable for this company that would one day buy us a new. Um, so I just, yeah, I figured that was not the right time to sell. Plus like I thought they were like not giving us the value that we could have gotten, which ended up being the right thing because of our dominant space in, in Northern California. Some of these 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 improvements to the business that you make, um, these are the low hanging fruit that you had started to to talk about a little while ago. Okay. Yep. Uh, and just and, and quickly because because we gotta watch the clock here, Manny. Just r- run through three or four of those again. So 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 we got yeah. te- we got tech involved, right? So uh, we got like uh, fleet management software, wherein you put this mm-hmm. fleet management this, software the fidget. Uh, this widget in every truck, so you would know at all times where all these trucks are. So, give you an example, some old lady, you know, obviously, uh, you know, there were a lot of old ladies calling municipalities saying that the street sweeper uh, never showed up on time, and or didn't show up at all, or was growing at going at really fast pace. Or earlier, they used to just call us and say, "Hey, you got to go back because you didn't sweep." And we were like, "No, the driver is." driver promises that he went there, you know, what are you talking about? And then they would be like, you said, I said kind of conversation. Then we had a GPS. So then they would be like, oh, the driver didn't show up. You just send them a screenshot of the GPS. Oh, a driver was at your, in your yard at 1048 AM. He was driving at five miles an hour and his, you could literally track whether his brooms were running or not, whether the water was going or not. You just then send them that snapshot and the municipality or city would send that snapshot over to the customer, right? So it eliminated a lot of customer service issues. Uh, second thing we were not doing well was maintenance. Like we were doing maintenance more ad hoc, uh, which was, um, you know, they were not preventive maintenance schedules. They were just, hey, if something broke, we would do it. Uh, so what we do use the software uh, for was creating that preventive maintenance schedule, wherein I think over the course of six months or so, we just did oil change checks at like certain number of miles we changed, you know, like we just had a whole schedule uh, on that software, which would ping the driver and the mechanic that you got to do this at a certain period of time versus in their head or, um, you know, or writing it on a piece of paper or someplace. You know, uh, customer service improved because we had like, you could just have uh, them sign on a digital paper on like, hey, this truck was here from this time to this time on the construction sweeping side. Um Billing issues reduced because everything was digital, right? And this truck went from this place, this hour to this hour. Payroll improved uh, because you could tell how much, um, uh, you know, how many hours a driver spent on a certain site. Um, so there was a lot of like improvements like that on the fleet management software side. We got the, what I said, a software called AR Collect, where they would automatically ping customers to pay invoices. And cons- construction industry is notorious for paying late. So you would just set those yeah. automatic reminders going and then you'd start collecting a lot fast. And then suddenly our working capital was, which was huge, went down significantly. Um, another thing we did was we changed our CapEx strategy. So owners being owners who worried more about how much cash goes in their pocket, they would look at um, running the trucks longer and just like 
duct taping the trucks and making sure it ran as long as possible. We changed that to um, we would buy newer trucks faster and just get rid of the older trucks. Um, so what ended up happening was the maintenance and parts expense would go down, right? And But yet the depreciation, uh, but the, when you bought the trucks, your depreciation would go up. But if whoever bought your company were looking at an EBITDA basis, which a lot of buyers were still doing, your EBITDA would be, would be much higher because maintenance and parts expense have gone down. Depreciation has gone up, but that's an ad back, right? So EBITDA would go mm -hmm, up, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> uh, and then not to say the, you know, the quality of like the driver would love that because he didn't have to like call the mechanic every time his truck broke down. The customer would love it because, you know, you're just sweeping, you're doing a good job, better job at sweeping. Um, so that piece also changed the morale of the mechanics and, and whatnot. And uh, so that also changed, uh, that was a big change in how we approached business was like, we'd find spending more money uh, because it was better in the long term. And we had the equipment line of credit and all that uh, kind of squared away at the beginning. Uh, so that helped out. That helped out a lot. Uh, we did a lot of leadership changes, you know, just, you know, thinking, thinking of what I need right now, what I need in the future, who is the right fit for what person. We kind of alluded to some of that um, early on in our discussion, spent a lot of time with my team, um, you know, opened up an office in SoCal, which was a big competition that the owners always stayed away from because it was a CNG. In, in SoCal, you used a CNG truck. Uh, versus a diesel truck, and they were not like really comfortable with that. They're more expensive, but we didn't. We felt like you know that wasn't a big differentiation, and we had to be in SoCal. Um, did that? Um, obviously, acquired a big business that helped a lot. So those were some of the things that we did. Obviously, didn't have a lot of time mm -hmm. to do those things in the 16 months or so that we had the business for. But I thought they were packed with like uh, packed with like stuff that we just kept doing every day, yeah. every week, every month. It felt like I was running the business for five years. And Manny, so going circling back to the to the PE acquisition. So ultimately, you kind of called your shot in the 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 slide or two in your deck, saying this is who's going to acquire us. And ultimately, it was them who. Now that business had had been purchased in the in the intervening year by another pr larger giant private equity fund. But still, it was the same business that you thought would acquire you acquired you. Yeah, yeah, I would have hoped they would have given me at least a couple of years to buy more businesses in California, but you can't you can't yeah. always pick your battles and you know, I'm still thankful for what we got. Uh but yeah, that was the I knew they were going to come because that West was the only place they could go to because they were doing all kinds of activity on the East Coast. And I didn't ask you at the be at the outset Manny um for any of the deal uh, terms. I, I know you can't say a lot, but maybe can you give a picture of some kind of high level picture of what your initial acquisition was for and then what your exit was for? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, so I, I have to be vague because of confidentiality reasons. You know, we bought the business at sub five times EBITDA and, you know, we we're, you know, we were, I, I think we got I, our, I, if you looked at it from an IRR perspective, um, you know, in 16 months, uh, we were like top five percentile of all search funds uh, from an IRR perspective, partly because it was less time, but partly because it was yeah. good result. And then I would say top 80, 70% in like MOIC ratio in terms of mm -hmm. like search funds, as far as like search funds are concerned. Uh, so it was a pretty good, you know, pretty good outcome. I don't know if I can say more. I had characterized it as life-changing for you. Is that accurate? 
Yes, yes, uh, in many ways, right? Not just financially, but I felt like it, it does give you a lot more. One, it happened so quickly, so you know, I still feel like, even though I have all this gray hair, I still feel young to do what, what, what you know <laughs> something else with the money I have and with the learnings I've had, uh, the connections I have, and the background I have. But obviously, uh, you know, um, life changing in, in so many different ways. Yeah. And now the you know boarding the tr boarding the plane to America and not envisioning yourself not envisioning that you get into the street sweeping business obviously uh, younger Manny would be happy with this outcome. I think so. Uh, I think so. Uh, but although younger Manny was pretty ambitious, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. But but no, I think he would be great. Okay, Manny, I want to leave just the last couple of minutes because you are now, you've subsequent to your sale and uh, getting out of the street sweeping business, you have uh, acquired another business and you're doing something of a roll up. So give us just a couple minutes on that. We're, we got, don't have time for a story uh, and maybe we'll have you back on to hear it in, in fuller detail uh, in the months ahead. But just tell, tell people what you're working on now. Yeah, it kind of goes back to uh, our discussion on... Uh, you know, what you should look beyond the metrics of like, what's a good search fund acquisition. And I've continued to believe that. So I ended up buying a business, buying a platform business, which inherently is not the favorite industry for the search fund world. So we bought a business in the solar industry. So it's part of my uh, private equity that we created called Mars Energy Partners, uh, Mars Equity Partners. And within that, I've created a holding company called Mars Energy wherein we are doing a roll-up of uh, renewable companies in the space. Uh, renewable companies in, um, in, in, in primarily starting with solar. Uh, we bought this company called NewGen Energy, um, and that's a company that does end-to-end -end solar services uh, for the agricultural community. So that's what's happening mm -hmm. in the California market. Electricity prices have gone up significantly due to droughts. Farmers need more and more bigger and bigger pumps, so need more electricity. And, uh, you know, solar has gotten cheaper and cheaper, with the, especially with the whole, um, you know, uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so it become, suddenly, solar has become really, really attractive. It was always attractive, but it has become like, I feel the next 10 is just going to be even more lucrative in solar than it has been in the last 10 years. So about that first company, um, and uh, that's gone great. Um, and, you know, got a great team. I'm not the CEO of that business. I'm the executive chairman. So I spent I spent all of my time with that business, 80, 90% of my time with that business. Uh, I'm working more on the business versus in the business. We have a great CEO. We ended up adding, having our first add-on acquisition also, uh, you know, a few weeks ago uh, in the solar space in California. They have also mandated every new construction, so residential or commercial, needs to have solar going forward. Um, so we bought a company that does serve that community, the general contractor for new construction community. Um, and then we have another LOI that we hope to knock on would close in the next month or so. Um, and, and then we have a lot of conversations going. Uh, so the goal is to be in, mostly in the commercial space. That's the goal. And uh, serve the 50 kilowatt to 20 megawatt uh, market. And uh, hopefully one day be the largest uh, small commercial uh, player in the country. And the reason that this is not doesn't check the boxes for a traditional search um, acquisition target is because it's high kind of project construction revenue? 
Uh, and because yeah. solar solar is maybe not considered growthy enough or what? Even though it sounds like it is? No, gr- solar is definitely considered growth. So, And that's why I feel like you got to look at it with all like different parameters. So it has high growth. That's not a problem. It's 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 high yeah. regulatory risk, right? It's stroke of the pen risk, right? What if subsidies go down, right, significantly? Yeah. Or yeah. and the and the project nature of this of this business. Even though my entire strategy is to convert some of this project based nature into recurring revenue, and we can talk more about that in the next podcast if if you invite me again. Uh, but the goal is to convert this project based nature uh, revenue into recurring revenue. Uh, through various means by owning these plants versus selling these plants. And we can talk more about that also. Uh, that's the that's why people don't want to buy that business. And it takes some effort to convert the revenue uh, quality of that business. But I'm willing to make that effort because I feel like that's easier to do than to find wait to three years to find the next street sweeping business and then only grow by acquisitions. Whereas this company is growing at 40, 50% CAGR organically, let alone adding acquisitions. Right. So, wow. Um, and Manny, would you characterize what you're doing here? Uh, your role is as independent sponsor, or are you kind of a searcher again, or you just don't really fit any of the buckets? You're, you've just got this kind of plan and you've raised money and you're going out and you're doing it. Yeah. So, when I started to think about what I wanted to do after sweeping, I knew I didn't want to be a pure play investor. So it was something, either the operator role again or somewhere in between. I feel like I'm somewhere in between, between an operator, like a CEO and an investor. So uh, for if, if I wanted to put it in a box, I'd call this a holding company in the solar space right now. So where we're uh, growing both organically and in, inorganically in the solar space, uh, uh, you know, and this holding company would, you know, uh, by multiple companies in different states and yet have certain things in common, like a, you know, almost like a blueprint or a playbook in common, whereas all the other things could be, brand could be different, you know, all those things could be, like employees, leadership could be different, but the blueprint remains the same. And that's what I'd call that, for lack of a better word. And, you know, I'll leave you with one last line on this is, I realized that the biggest value add that I had at Sweeping was when I was working more on the business versus in the business, right? Not to say in the business, mm-hmm. you know, not looking at operations, not to, to that value, but the biggest value add was making those strategic moves. And after the deal, deal got done, I thought about that hard and I felt like I just had to maximize that number of times that I would do those, uh, I'm able to do those strategic moves and minimize the time where I'm spending time on like stuff that's not gonna add a ton of value to the overall organization. And the way I figured I would be able to do that would be my be as an executive chairman role, which is what I am. These companies, so I spend all my time with the company. I spend I'm in all the leadership meetings every week, uh, but I'm not I'm not at the at the ground level, you know, blocking and tackling because we have an amazing CEO. But I am talking to other companies we want to buy. I'm talking to a vendor in Vietnam to get the panels cheaper. I'm talking to all the key hires we are having, just interviewing them. Um, and I'm talking about the tech solution that can change uh, the, the whole landscape of solar, in my opinion. Uh, so we're, we're having, I'm having those conversations, and you know, um, and I feel like if I spend enough time doing that, and somebody is able to take care of the business, which the CEO does, I think a growth could be much faster. Um, so that's that's kind of again broad strokes to your question. 
Well, uh, the way I find myself reacting to that is that it, that it echoes a model that I'm hearing more and more just because I'm maybe I'm asking about it more where where cert so not at necessarily the level you're playing at now, but even first time searchers uh, buy a business and immediately put in an operator. Um, and uh, of course, you know, that that is often people are often dissuaded from doing that because you need to understand the business because don't think that a small business is passive and all these quite valid reasons, but but the model isn't put in an operator and don't think about the business anymore, and it's just going to you know mail you checks. The idea is put in an operator, so, as you put it, so the blocking and tackling on a day to day basis is handled, and you can go immediately be working on the business side in the business and working in partnership with your operator, with your CEO, your president, your general manager. First of all. It probably prevents you from doing the work you're maybe not that good at with the operations of a street sweeping business um, or not as good as somebody from the industry is. And, and, and it frees you to immediately just always be thinking strategically. Um, and that all, sure sounds fun, you know, just just buying a business and moving the chess pieces around. I don't know how realistic it is, but there are increasingly there are more and more stories that I hear on this very podcast from my guests um, of that model seeming to work. And, and here you are um, doing something like it again. You're probably you probably got a little bit more money to play with than, than a lot of the folks li listening. But but still, I, it's worth noting i would say uh, so yes but i would say that with one caveat a lot of people when they're doing that mm -hmm. they're buying different businesses in different industries which is very difficult i feel like you need to be really deep into a business to be making right choices or decisions right so i have immersed myself into solar right so i don't need to go to the ceo to ask him whether this is a good business fit for us or not I, at least i'm at that level i'm asking the right questions yeah and i've been to this like i've went on like ride-alongs with like solar installation teams. So I'm deep into that one domain, right? So it's easier for yeah, me to play yeah. that role, strategic role versus like, hey, I'm running an e-commerce business on the side. I'm running a, you know, logistics business on this side. I'm trying to move, make these strategic moves, but strategy doesn't work un unless you have, um, you know, uh, the business or an understanding of the, you know, of, of the day-to-day. You need that understanding to yeah. be making efficient strategy moves. Otherwise, you'll make a lot more mistakes. So I feel like that's a huge difference yeah. in what I'm seeing where people are like, oh, I'm buying, I bought this other business and I'm just got a CEO in there. And I'm like, well, you better find out. Hopefully you found an amazing person, CEO, who can keep doing what you want him to do or her to do and uh, mailing you the check. But oftentimes I agree is not the case uh, because there's just so many things that can go wrong with the business, especially at the size we, we play at. Mm -hmm. Manny, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the case. So, so going back to your street sweeping success, there Northwestern uh, or Kellogg did a whole case study around your story there. So that will be linked in the notes. That's a great read um, for not only the drama but also for if you if you're <laughs> hungry for even more uh, of a, a deep dive into the street sweeping industry. Um, Manny, if people want to get in touch with you, how do you prefer they do that? Um, uh, LinkedIn is probably the best to reach out, uh, but also, um, you know, uh, my website, Mars Equity Partners, uh, you can get, get a hold of me from there on out. Uh, but also, uh, you know, uh, my email is not hard to find. I'm pretty sure I'm usually, uh, in a lot of these conferences, so twin conferences. Um, so yeah, I look forward to, you know, uh, interacting with as many people as I can. I got a lot of help when I was coming up and I want to give back, uh, give back some of that to uh, folks who are coming up and that selfishly, 
get get a chance to be connected to ambitious, motivated, you know, uh, highly talented people who would love. I would love to have a relationship for the rest of my life, and also get opportunities to invest uh, alongside, which I'm also doing on the side on search. Um, so yeah, those will be the best way to reach me, and uh, you know, always looking for for like a. Uh, you know, really, uh, in a good conversation and meeting, uh, talented folks. Great. Well, uh, I think the audience here, um, are, meet the smart, ambitious, uh, interesting, um, <laughs> characteristics that you're looking for. So, uh, audience, uh, take, take Manny up on his invitation to connect. Manny, thanks so much for sharing your story. What, what a fun and interesting story. And, uh, yeah, let, let's let's connect again about how how your solar adventures are going, and maybe uh, and maybe get you back in the seat here next year. Thank you so much, Will. This was a blast. Thanks for having me. <laughs>